you need to pick your afro daddy because it's flat on one side what are you waiting on dun, dun. So, I had my first real college girlfriend. And we got to be close, right? And for a while, it felt like I really knew her. It felt like we knew each other, inside and out. We finished each other's sentences. She would even roll her eyes before I said something stupid. And I thought it would be like that forever. And then she broke up with me. And I was sad. So sad. But I was young and couldn't stay sad forever. Eventually, I met a new somebody. And she was cool and nice and had a badonkadonk and all was good. And one day, walking down the street with my new girlfriend, I saw my ex walking towards us. And I got nervous, like I felt guilty or something, but I wasn't doing anything wrong. She said she wanted to keep it adult, very French, everything's cool. So I tried to smile warmly as she approached. I stretched up my hand to greet her, hello. Hello, hello, um, hello, hello. (laughs) And suddenly, I couldn't remember her name. Two years of my life, and I didn't have the foggiest idea of what this woman might be called. Hello, um, (laughs) and my ex says, oh, so you're with Miss Thang now. So you want to pretend like you don't even know my name, huh? I'm like, no, 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 no. So I tried a different strategy. I was gonna introduce my current girlfriend first. Well, this is, um, this is someone, this is someone very special to me, very special indeed. I like for you to meet this special someone. (sighs) Somehow, I've forgotten her name as well. And my ex storms away in a huff. My current girlfriend stands there furious. And she says, you have a problem and you need to get some help. Like, after two semesters, she's going to get all psych major on me. I don't have a problem. I just get nervous. If you didn't have a problem, you wouldn't get nervous. People get nervous. If you didn't have a problem, you wouldn't get nervous. Well, you would get nervous, too, if you saw the one and only person you would ever truly love walking towards you on the street. And, of course, that was the opposite of what I should have said. And as I stood on the street, watching her storm away, I wondered, I pondered how much better my life would be if I had just turned around and walked away. Today, from PRX and NPR, Snap Judgment proudly presents Performance Anxiety. Stories about people turning their moment to shine until their moment to crash and burn. My name is Glenn Washington, and this is Snap Judgment. Now, no one knows performance anxiety like a major leaguer knows performance anxiety. Our first story comes from former big leaguer Steve Sachs. My name is Steven Sachs, Roseville, California. I knew what I wanted to do when I was five years old to play professional baseball. It was a passion for me. I signed out of high school in 1978 as an 18-year-old and started in the minor leagues. 
in August of 1981. I was 21 years old. I remember getting the call very well. They said, go in the office, they want to talk to you. So I go in there, and our manager, and he's talking on the phone. And then he hangs up the phone, and he says, congratulations, you're going to the big leagues. And my mouth said, what? And uh, he said, and you're, not, and you're in the starting lineup tomorrow in Chicago with the big team, the Los Angeles Dodgers. And I was like, what? Got to Chicago and I landed and I got in a cab and I said, take me to Wrigley Field. My dad played, not professionally, but my dad did play in high school. He was a really good player. I think he had aspirations of playing professional baseball, but never really got an opportunity. My dad was a tough brother. He made John Wayne look like a wimp. Never said, I love you. Never. Never said, I'm sorry. He wasn't demonstrative in his feelings that way. Lots of times I got a whooping and I had to wonder why. I played second base. I was the youngest person in the league. So I had to learn this in, in a very uh, quick fashion. I was very, um, very anxious though. I was uh, playing against guys that I saw on TV and all this and going against Nolan Ryan. He would have been a great pitcher in any era, but I, um, I relished the opportunity. It was great. I remember one time Don Sutton was working on a no-hitter in the eighth inning. One of my teammates got a hit. So now it was a one-hitter. However, it was a shutout. He still had no runs were scored. And it would have been his 56th career shutout, which would have been a record. And I had two strikes and two outs in the ninth inning, and he threw me a fastball. I mean, I just reacted. I hit this ball, and I hit a home run. So it broke up the shutout. And so I came back to the dugout, and then I feel somebody tap me on the shoulder. Look, looked over, and it's Don Sutton. He said, I just want to tell you, here's the ball that you just hit this home run off of me. And I wanted to sign it for you and tell you that you're going to be a great player. And I just wanted to let you know that I got a lot of respect for you. That, to me, was the ultimate showing of class. And I'll never forget that. I thought, that's the way I'm going to be. Yeah, I was Rookie of the Year in 1982. And, uh, and then this problem started in 83. So it was my second full year, my sophomore season. I had made an error early in the season against the Expos, like the third game, and it was a senseless error. It was a, a, a ball that was hitting me out in the gap, and the guy was going to stop at third base, and I got the ball, and I threw home anyway. I didn't need to. The guy scored, and I started thinking about that error. And then the next ball was hit to me, I, th I made an error. And then pretty soon I had five or six errors, and, and I started thinking about it, and I just started to snowball and got so bad. Sometimes when I'd throw the ball away, I'd miss it by a long shot. When fear and doubt creep into your psyche, that is very dangerous. It was tantamount to having the yips in golf. You know, if you ever golfed and you're getting ready to golf and you get ready to putt and you just kind of freeze up, that's what I was doing. My arm was on freeze mode and the ball would just go anywhere. They would take me out in the afternoon and blindfold me. The Dodgers would and make me throw the ball to first base blindfolded. And I would do it impeccably all the time. And then the game would roll around and it would be okay. And then, and then here it come again. I'd throw that ball away and, and it was like saying, don't think about a pink elephant for the next two seconds. Well, that's what you do. And I would wake up with it. I would, go to, I would go to bed with it. I was eating with it at every meal. I was losing weight. I was becoming the laughing stock of the league. Yes, I started getting a lot of bad press. Uh, the Steve Sachs syndrome is like, uh, you know, I've done some other things in baseball besides made a few errors one year. I sure as hell didn't like it. Did you know I led the league in fielding? No, they don't remember that. I mean, I would go to a stadium like in San Francisco and they would have these gigantic bed sheets. They would paint the target on it and saying, Sachs, throw me a souvenir. I was getting calls and letters from women that played Bobby Sox softball saying, you are, must be some kind of an idiot because I'm a woman and I can make that throw. I got death threats on the road from people who said the betting lines are being changed in Vegas because they're afraid you're going to make an error and blow the game. So if you make another error, when you come to New York, we're going to put a bullet in your head. I mean, it, was, it just never stopped. This one particular day, I decided that I was going to call my father and talk to him about this. I needed somebody to throw me a rope because I was sinking. My dad told me, he says, one day you're going to wake up and this whole problem is going to be gone. It's just that you lost your confidence. It was just confidence. There was nothing wrong with me because he experienced it. My dad said that he'd gone through the same thing when he was in high school. And my dad gave me that something to grab onto when he told me that. Because I figured if that invincible, strong, imposing figure could go through the same thing I'm going through, well, if it can hurt him... Maybe it's not so bad. That's the last conversation I ever had with him.
Uh, the next day, I got the call at a quarter to six saying, you got to come to my room. It was Tommy the Sword at my manager. So I went to his room and hit the elevator and my brother was on the elevator. My brother was on the team. And we just looked at each other and we just said, it's, it's dad. We knew it. And then we got to Lasorda's room and Tommy was crying and all this stuff. He said, I, this is the hardest thing I have to do as a manager, but I got to tell you boys, you lost your father. And that was really hard. Yeah, my mom told me that uh, um, one thing my dad said right before he passed away, that he was really happy and fulfilled that he got to see both of his boys playing the major league. So, I mean, I know he was happy about that. That made me stronger. It's like a bone that breaks and, you know, when the bone heals, it, it heals a lot stronger. Then I was back to being myself. As a matter of fact, I finished the last 40 games without an error. I mean, it, was, it went from the worst to the best in the league. I was fortunate to go on to make a few all-star teams. We won the World Series twice when I was with the Dodgers. And then years later, when I went on to the Yankees to play, I led the league in fielding. I was a top fielder in my position. These are, uh, these are my jerseys, the Dodgers and the Yankees, but the White Sox, and just a little bit with the Oakland A's. A little over 17 years total, and I got to finish my career on my terms. I left everything there the way it should have been. The interesting thing about this whole thing is that about two years after I retired, my mom was having this conversation with me and um, she knew that my dad had told me that he'd gone through this thing and that really helped me a lot. And she says, I have to tell you that your father never went through a throwing problem, ever. He just said that to help me get over this. The guy that never said, I love you, that's the way he did, that's the way he said it. Sachs, thank you very much. Steve has a new book out called Shift. Change your mindset, change your world. We'll have a link on our site, snapjudgment.org. That piece was produced by Stephanie Fu with sound design by Renzo Gorio. Now, this next story comes to us from an amazing little experiment in storytelling. It's called The Decisions Project, in which Angus Anderson he drove his motorcycle across North America for three months and asked 220 people the same question. What's the hardest decision you've ever had to make? Here's the answer he got from a man named David Cameron selling hot dogs under a rainbow umbrella in Montgomery, Alabama. I was playing this nightclub and I'd been wanting to go to Nashville ever since I was 14 years old. I wasn't no Elvis Presley by no means, and I wasn't no Johnny Cash, but I, was, I could hold my own. And this woman come in one night, and I noticed she had been coming in about four or five weekends in a row and just sitting there listening. One night she said, you ever thought about going to Nashville? And I said, yeah, I sure have. She said, well, be in Nashville Monday morning at a certain time at a certain place. And I thought to myself, that woman's crazy. I was a mechanic, and I was, believe it or not, I was making tremendously good money. And Sunday night, I was sitting there, and I said, if I'm going to Nashville, I ought to get my butt up and get ready. Then I walked around the house a little bit, and I said, shoot, I ain't going up there. I ain't going to lose my good job just for hoping I get in. I, I, guess, that's, I guess that's about the best way to say it. Uh, I was afraid. Well, Monday morning, I went to work. I didn't go to Nashville. Two weekends later, she come down and said, where was you at? And I said, yeah, I know you were just kidding me, so I didn't show up. She said, I wasn't kidding. She said, I own the studio that I wanted to record you at. And I said, ma'am, can I come tomorrow? She said, no, too late. I said, I've done got somebody else in mind now. I said, I had you in mind because I thought you could make it. And I, oh, that was the hardest decision I made, and I made it wrong. Oh, Lord goodness. I believe if I'd have made it, I'd have been a whole lot better off. I, I wouldn't be selling hot dogs today. I believe I'd have been a little bit higher on the totem pole today than I would have been. Yes, Lord. <laughs> I tell you what, by doing the decision I did, if somebody from there on out offered me a little incentive to, to do something, I went and done it. 
I'll take a risk a little bit more. Yes, sir. I don't question it two or three times. I just go ahead and take that risk. Oh, yes, I'll take it. <laughs> Thanks again to Angus Anderson and the Decisions Project for bringing us that story. We'll have a link to the Decisions Project on our website, snapjudgment.org. It was produced by Anna Sussman. When Snap Judgment continues, we're going to go on lockdown at San Quentin. We're going to fall in love. And we're going to take the stage at the most unlikely venue of all, for real, when Snap Judgment, the performance anxiety episode, continues. Stay tuned. Snap Judgment, performance anxiety episode. Now, anyone who has ever performed knows there is a tough crowd, and then there is a tough crowd. Snap Judgment's Jamie DeWolf brings the noise to the toughest crowd of all. Perhaps I was blind to the facts, stabbed in the back, I couldn't trust my own hopes, just a bunch of dirty facts, will I succeed, never know it. My absurd poetry career has taken me from Moscow, Russia to doing writing workshops for kindergarten classes. But then there was the day I was asked to perform at San Quentin Penitentiary. Our first performance was canceled due to what they called a small incident. I had to read the newspaper the next day to discover it was a full-scale riot with multiple stabbings. A few weeks later, and our performance writing workshop was finally allowed. The rules were simple. You had to submit to a background check and couldn't wear any red or blue. So I decided to go Johnny Cash style and wear all black. It was four slam poets and my performance partner, Jeff. At the gate, the guards stopped us and had us sign a no-hostage negotiation contract. He explains, if we just happened to be kidnapped by a convict, the state would not barter for your life. This is for your safety, he told us. That way, it's not worth it to them, you know? You're not a pawn piece to be traded. He was required to tell us this. He was not required to help us relax. Spread them. Now, it's hard to act like you're cool as cucumbers when the man standing next to you has two guns strapped to his waist. He had a two-foot-long steel baton, wrist cuffs, and a pepper spray can the size of a 40-ounce dangling from his belt. I don't even have a pen on me, because they confiscate those at the gate. They say the pen is mightier than the sword, but in here, you can't even bring in paper copies of poems. They have to print those themselves and count every single copy. Every paper clip, every piece of paper has to be accounted for. Even the poems I'm bringing him can be wadded up, burnt with wax, and sharpened into a makeshift shank. Words can truly be weapons here. The first gate was so massive, it was hard to believe a tank would survive driving through it, and the guards led us two more after that until we were inside the prison. We walked into a garden that would have been pretty until the guard nodded to the right and said, and then 
There's the row. Death row. It was hard to believe that 100 feet from where I was standing, Scott Peterson and the Night Stalker were sitting in cells getting fat and gray waiting for a state needle. The guard led us down to the yard, a massive expanse that stretches out to the sea where you can see the Golden Gate Bridge shimmering through the fog. Hundreds of prisoners are in the yard lifting weights, playing tennis and football. Two pale pasty guys in blue are leering at our troop. There's three other guys with close-shaved heads who stop strutting and stare at me, whispering in their leader's ear. Something suddenly hits me hard in the head. I flash white, think of palms sharpened into knives, and I instinctively move towards a guard, then look down to see a tennis ball bouncing at my feet. The guard says, What's the matter, you nervous boy? Nah, I'm cool, I say. They lead us into the literacy classroom and tell us our audience will be there in 10. And that's when I realize I'm no Johnny Cash. I feel like I'm about to dry heave into a trash can. So Jeff and I start drilling our poem over and over. And then there's this guy who comes up. His hair is in a brown ponytail. Looks like he's younger than both of us. And he says, what's up, guys? You guys going to do some music or something? I say, nah, we... We do like performance, uh, you know, like poetry, theater, comedy, that kind of thing. We're going to do a duet. Says, oh, you know, I used to play music, you know. You guys like Danzig? Yeah, I like some Danzig. I love Danzig. He says, you ever seen him live? I said, nah, man, I wanted to. Have you? He said, well, sort of. You know, I went to a show in San Diego. I don't know. I got really drunk in the parking lot and got into a fight with this guy. And, and I stabbed him and, and he died. Whoa, that's, uh, that's cool. So what's cool about that? I mean, no, I mean, nothing, nothing. I mean, you know, Danzig's cool. He says, all right, guys, well, you better rock it, and sits down. The prisoners file in. There's 60 of them in blue, and it's the real deal you've seen in every movie. A guy's got swastikas tattooed on his cheek, and he's sitting next to black Muslims wearing dashikis. Now, Jeff is Jewish, but I'm more freaked out by the swastika than he is. The last place I want to bomb is at San Quentin Penitentiary. The order of performers is random, and we get called first to do our duet. We go up to the front and start it how we normally do. Well, this here is a ditty about your first step into hell. And we go full force into it. The first minute, I'm trying to pretend I'm on any other stage. And I'm in Moscow, I'm in New York, I'm in Oakland. But the guy with swastika tats is staring at me. I swear to God, he hasn't blinked once. And I find myself meeting his eyes until he breaks into laughter. Pounding his desk until the whole room is roaring. And I realize, thank God, this is just another crowd. Every punchline is hitting like they do in bars and and in theaters, but harder because these guys have been waiting all day for something to laugh at. And we're killing it. Every line about suicide attempts, meth addiction, crazy girlfriends, survival by chance. Shut off my phone. And this poem is dedicated to anybody who's ever had to steal diapers. Anybody's ever had to sleep uneasy to sirens. To everybody who goes home to a vampire at the, the end, end of the day. day. And I blow a kiss to every roach and, and raise, raise a toast to, to Terror Street and Agony Way. We finish our duet to a standing ovation. As we go off stage and catch our breath, a prisoner wearing a hairnet comes up and says, yo, you guys killed it. I always loved that piece. I say, what? What, have you heard it before? I said, yeah, man, I saw you guys performing at the Starry Plow. It's me, Lyrokinesis, remember? Lyrokinesis? Then I do recognize him. From a year back when he had cornrows and flashy clothes. He was putting a show together and he asked if we could perform, but I was already booked that night. I remember telling him, next time, but just let me know. I never heard from him, and now I know why. I want to ask him why he's here, but you can't do that. Their sentence already says too much. But I'm still in show mode. I want to invite him to an after party, want to give him a flyer or something. He says, yo, man, you guys coming back or what? I say, well, if they'll have us, yeah. But for now, I got some stuff recorded. Maybe I could send you a CD or something? He says, nah, 
They don't let me get those. But you guys ever on the radio? Because I get that. And back then, I wasn't. So I said no. But I am now. And if you're listening, Lyrokinesis, this one is for you. San Quentin, you've been living hell to me. Formed by Jamie DeWolf, produced by Mark Ristich and Pat Masini Miller. Now then, that sage modern philosopher, Eminem, he once said these wise words Do not miss your chance to blow, for opportunity comes once in a lifetime yo well what if opportunity comes and you're not ready I was a very intense youth in high school I felt like I had no religion but really my religion was that you would find true love Every person only had one person and that you would find them and then you'd be with them for the rest of your life. I was scrawny and not good at sports in high school, so I didn't really have many girlfriends. So I really always looked to college as the time when I would find my love. I went to a small liberal arts school in Vermont. And when you think about how stupid that is, that there's only one person in the whole world, and I went to the middle of upstate Vermont to find her. Students who studied a language would eat lunch at the language tables, which would be in their language. So if they were Spanish, you'd have a Spanish waiter and you could only speak Spanish together. And I was an Italian waiter. And one day there was a new waitress in town and that was, uh, let's call her Anya. Long, flowing, curly black hair. She was from Eastern Europe, had a sexy accent, chain smoked, spoke fluent Italian. It was, you know, I mean, I couldn't, I didn't stand a chance. We sort of fell in with each other and we would go on breaks and she would smoke cigarettes and we would talk intensely about life and love and our hopes and our dreams. And she would look at me with these, this expression that just said, I want to be with you for the rest of my life and I, I want to devote myself to your children. I mean, that was just every time she looked at me, it was just like, Mike, you are the most amazing person. So I profess my love to Anya. She does not share that sentiment. She said, well, you know, I have a boyfriend and I love him. There's this guy who looks like Brad Pitt from Legends of the Fall. I was like, well, I thought, you know, we had something going here. And apparently that's just the way she looked at everybody. My mistake. So then she said to me, let's, you know, let's be friends. And that had never been said to me before. So I didn't know what that really meant, which was, you should probably never talk to me again if you want to be happy. You know, I'm going through my first existential crisis. Standard English major stuff. I was writing a novel as my senior year. I'm taking a class. The class was Petrarchan love poetry. So Petrarch is the quintessential unrequited love poet. He went so far as to have a love object who was so unattainable that she was actually dead. So he was in love with this woman, Laura, who I don't even think he ever spoke to. And then she died, and he would go to her grave and just write her odes, and then he makes her into this perfect, sort of like a statue, just without flaws. I had totally quit music for writing novels. So then I started writing songs again, and I'm taking this Petrarch class, and so I'm turning Anya into a love object. And the songs were terrible, they were horrifying. But so then I go to Anya's room and I sing her these songs and all of her friends. And so nobody, like, obviously they're about her. It's, it's pitiful. But nobody says anything. They would, like, pour apple teeny liqueur neat in the uh, dining hall cups. And, you know, we'd pass that around. Since it was such a small school, we were one of two bands, so we got all these gigs. So our first show, Anya and her boyfriend both came and they were right in the front row, just like, as far as I could tell, thinking they were supporting me. 
and she's there just looking at me with those eyes and I'm singing these songs about the both of them. Yeah, it was like, I'm doing your work for you because I was still giving Anya that love poetry that she needed. And there's parts where I'm actually screaming lyrics because it was an emo band. I'm doing your work for you. My wings are like his All my words on his lips The kicker is that he came up to me right after the show and said, Mike, I really love that song, that like, that I'm doing your work for you song. Yeah, that was awesome. And I just stared at him. It's like, I hate you, bro. And I lived like that for a while until one night I got a phone call from Anya and she said, I broke up with my boyfriend. I, I really need to see you. And I'm, I'm like, okay, is this it? Petrarch's poems didn't work because she was dead, but my poems worked. I did it. I did raise Laura from the dead. So it's freezing cold. It's the dead of winter. It's like midnight, and I bundle myself up. I have like a scarf on, ski goggles, and I just run across the field to her dorm. I go up to her room. You know, she's very sad, and we, we hug right away. And then we sit down on her bed, and we start talking. And it's just like there's a totally different tone to it. She's just sort of like reaching out to me a little with her body, sort of like moving closer to me. And she's looking at me with that same look as before, but now I'm wondering if it means something different, if it means that she wants me t- to kiss her this time. And you know that moment when it's like, you're done talking and it's just time to do it. And I can't do it. I just, I get so totally quiet. I start shaking. I just totally lose my nerve because I made her into something. In my mind, she existed as someone who didn't love me back. And that was the person who I made in my songs. And that was the person who I actually liked interfacing with. And when she changed that, it was just too much for me. You know, I couldn't handle it. Well, what I, so <laughs> the moment passed. She took one look at my face, basically, and she was like, okay, Mike, my roommate is gone. You, you go to sleep in her bed. Oh, yeah, I immediately regretted my decision to not kiss her. Reality came flooding back in, which was like, there's a girl that you think is gorgeous and wonderful and you want to kiss her, but you didn't kiss her. But it was too late. I don't know. I was grateful for the muse and... That's really when I started making music again, and I never stopped. But at this point, I'm I'm better at making the moves. Thank you, Mike Denny. Mike Denny, the lead singer of the band Geographer. See? It goes to show you can be a nerd and turn into a rock star all the same. And the music in that piece was all by the band geographer. See how cool that is? Next time, Mike Denny, the band geographer, kiss the girl. But only if she wants you to, Snappers. Only if she wants you to. That story was produced by Stephanie Fu. You don't have to be nervous. There is no need. You're listening to Snap Judgment Performance Anxiety. Don't go anywhere. Snap Judgment. Storytelling with the beat. We'll be right back after the break.
Welcome back to Snap Judgment from PRX and NPR, the performance anxiety episode. My name is Glenn Washington, and today we're dragging people right up to the podium only to watch them dissolve under the spotlight. But our next guest, he will not be cowed. Freelance writer Doug Cordell was hungry for a job using his writing skills, and he wasn't going to let an absurdity or two get in the way of a steady paycheck. Notes from the Fun Factory. One. I got a gig today as a writer on a kid's TV show. I've never done much of that kind of work, but I figure it'll be a good way to make some quick money without taking too much time away from my novel. The timing was crucial because last week I started reusing paper towels. I wasn't sure if the people at the show were going to call it off, frankly. I didn't think the interview went especially well. It was just the producer and me, and the whole time I was talking about my work experience, he kept leaning back in his air on chair. So why do you want to write for children's television? I leaned away from him and scanned my brain for an answer, then mumbled, well, I like children, and I like television. That was followed by 30 seconds of dead air. So I was surprised when they called and offered me the contract. Two, this is the sweetest setup I've ever had. It's like a playhouse for adults. Everyone is really friendly. The women in the front office are beautiful. The whole staff is very enthusiastic about the show. The target audience is four to six-year-olds. It's all puppets, a bear, a pig, a rabbit, and so on, shot against a cheesy-looking computer-animated forest. The truth is, I was a little nervous about the whole thing at first. They take this stuff very seriously. But it is four to six-year-olds, I'm thinking. So how hard can it be? Three. My first table read. The puppeteers sit around the lunch table on the set and give your script a cold read while the producer sits back and makes notes. He seemed pretty happy with the script, but one of the puppeteers, the guy who works the pig puppet, came up to me afterwards with a line of dialogue circled in red. He said Giblet, not the puppet's real name, wouldn't say that. Well, I told him, I was thinking we could add another dimension to Giblet's character. Maybe give him a bit of an agenda, I said with a wink. He looked at me soberly. Giblet doesn't have an agenda, he said. Four. I was hoping to inject a little politics into the show. I pitched an episode where the pig and the donkey are running in competition for a vaguely defined treasury position in the computer-animated forest. It all would have devolved into a mad scramble for power. It may be a subliminal lesson for the kids about how not to let hot-button social issues distract you from your true class interests. But the producer got hung up on a small plot point that turned on the rabbit getting a pair of running shoes. Rabbits don't wear shoes, he said with a smirk. That got a chuckle from the new kid they hired as script assistant. Well, I pointed out, he's wearing a vest. The vest is part of his character, the producer said solemnly, and the script assistant made a note. Five. The pressure to crank out scripts is beginning to build. We're two weeks behind the shooting schedule and everybody looks stressed. My back has been going into spasms whenever I hunch over my desk to bang out puppet dialogue. Plus, I've been so wired at night, knowing how much work I have to do, I started taking Ambien to get to sleep. Sylvia, one of the other writers, suggested it. The only drawback, she said, is that after using it for a while, you start to feel a little surly by the next afternoon. Like you could eat glass, she said. Six. Last night, a woman at a party asked me what I do. Writing, I told her. What kind of writing? Well, I said, I'm working on a novel. Nothing. Her eyes glazed over as if I just said I scraped gum off movie theater seats. But right now, I added, I'm also writing for a children's television show. Her face suddenly came alive. Really, she said, that must be fun. Yes, I said, warming to her enthusiasm and throwing in a knowing nod. It's fun, but it's a lot of work. Seven. I am a puppet god. My third script went over fantastically at the table read. The puppeteers hammed it up shamelessly, a sign that the script crackles with energy. Even the producer, notoriously stingy with compliments, made a point of saying how much he liked it. Eight. I think the ambient is starting to catch up with me. One of the other writers spilled coffee on today's find-a-word puzzle, and I wanted to rip his face off. Meanwhile, I've been editing scripts on the floor all week, flat on my back. It's the only way I can keep the muscle spasms from starting up again. 
At today's table read, the producer almost stepped on my head. I was lying on the floor behind one of the puppet maker's workbenches when he came bounding in to deliver the script. It was a freelance submission by his wife, a marketing executive at Bed Bath & Beyond, who, we were told, has a terrific story since. 9. Two weeks until we wrap for the season. I've never worked so hard in my life. I don't know if I'll even make it two more weeks. I'm determined not to quit, though. I've decided that if it comes to it, I'm going to make them fire me. One thing's for sure. I'll never take a job like this again. I'd rather scrape gum off movie theater seats. 10. Made it to the end. And you know what? I could see doing this again. Today was the wrap party for the season, and I wasn't going to go. I was trying to sneak out a side door when I ran into a pack of puppeteers and got herded along. It turned out to be more fun than I expected. For one thing, the women in the front office made it a celebration of the writers. They had us wear crowns made out of newspaper and number two pencils and stand for group photos in the middle of the restaurant. And the cute girl who works the droopy puppet came over and told me how much she liked the way I fleshed out his character. You made him more than some dysfunctional donkey, she said. After a couple of hours at the open bar, even the puppeteer for Giblet pulled me aside. We've had our differences, Manny told me, but I respect you because you respect the puppet. At the end of the night, the producer and I shared a drunken toast to one another's talent. Then he gave me an awkward hug and told me about another project he's got in the works that he thinks I'd be perfect for. It's about an extended family of vowels who play winter sports and, from what I can tell, live in a sort of dyslexic alpine village. He asked me if I thought that sounded interesting. It does, I told him. It definitely does. I definitely think it does. Doug Cordell is an Emmy-nominated television writer, essayist, and radio performer living in the Bay Area. This piece, Notes from the Fun Factory, is adapted from a forthcoming novel. It was produced by Jamie DeWolf and Anna Sussman. Now, next up on Snap Judgment, stand-up comedian John Ramsey, he just wanted to tell jokes. Just wanted to tell jokes. And John, he didn't care where he did it. I was in Kenya because I was working as a human rights attorney with the International Justice Commission. Their primary work is um, trying to get innocent men and women out of prison and representing young girls who have been attacked and molested. And um, I knew before I left I wanted to do stand-up comedy when I got there. And so I thought I'd give myself like six months to kind of learn culture a little bit, <laughs> enough to write some jokes. Through different circumstances, a Kenyan attorney I knew worked for Churchill Live, which is the Kenyan version of this night show. And so she got in touch with me and she was like, you have to audition for the show. Through that, she put me in touch with a comedian who was going to go over my act and help me get material together. He said, send me some material. So I sent him like an hour. And I, knew, I mean, I knew most of it wouldn't work, but I thought maybe he could listen to it. We meet the next week and we sit down. And the first thing he says, so do you have any more jokes? I'm like, oh, geez, <laughs> you know, nothing, nothing at all. And he's really polite, but he basically says, no, nothing at all. But I, then I was just curious, like, let's, can we go through some of these jokes and like talk about why these jokes didn't work? And some of them were for very practical reasons. Like I have a joke. I talk about the first guy to eat a pineapple, but the punchline involves a pine cone. And he was like, what's a pine cone? And I had never even thought that my jokes were like geographically restrictive. And then some of them were, were culturally just different because I have a joke about how I think it's sad if you get to the point where you have to set your clock forward to trick yourself into being on time. And um, that's just culturally not a priority at all, being on time, right? There's, you've heard of African time, and that's a real thing. And, you know, so I'm like, uh, how do you say, like, Una Sema J, I'm on time. And he says, he kind of thinks, and he says, si uh, ja which means I am not late yet. So you can understand how that joke doesn't work. And then some of the jokes didn't work for kind of like, like grave reasons, like that I wasn't thinking. I have a joke about bananas going bad too quickly. And he basically said, I don't think you should tell that joke because people won't find it funny to hear a, a white person talking about throwing away food. Mm. 
And I was like, oh, jeez. This was like his favorite joke of his. In American movies, they have real looking guns and real looking bullets. And when they die, it's real looking. In Kenya, in the movies, they have fake looking guns and fake looking bullets and they die fake looking. That's, that's the joke. At that point, I was like, oh, geez, you know, this is, we, we're on two different continents, literally and, and metaphorically. So I'm starting to think of like comedy as, and of course it is, but it's so ingrained in culture. It's wars, it's legends, it's tribes, it's religion, it's landmarks, and it's thousands of years old. And Kenya and America have taken totally different trajectories. And so here I am, and I'm reworking an act. And basically my writing process goes like this. I write a new joke. It has something to do with me being a white person in Kenya. And if it makes me laugh, I throw it out. So I'm like, oh, that's kind of funny. It'll never work. This was just jokes I didn't get. And so I write about 15 minutes of material and he chooses five. And then he says, this is really good. And I'm like, I'll take your word for it. I auditioned for Churchill Live. Did five minutes, they loved it. This is great, we're gonna do it. And so we move forward, I show up at 2 p.m. on the day of the show and I'm about to perform for about five to 10 million Africans. And presumably the only thing we have in common is that we're all human beings and that we all think it's a pretty bad idea for me to be there. And so I'm backstage sitting next to a member of the Kenyan parliament with um, the musical guest, and his name's Emmanuel Jal. We're having a pretty normal conversation. He's a really cool guy. Um, but he goes out on stage, and that's when I realized that he is a former Sudanese war child who's now a hip-hop star. Well, Emmanuel Jal is kind of world famous. He performed at like Nelson Mandela's 90th birthday party. His last music video has like cameos by George Clooney, Richard Branson, Alicia Keys, uh, Jimmy Carter. And I'd just been talking to him backstage for like 30 minutes, so all of a sudden I'm like, oh my gosh, what did I say? I hope I didn't complain about anything. Like, oh, this Coke's flat, something like that. You know, and then he goes out and he, he sings this song about Emma McCune. It's called Emma, it's a beautiful song, but it's about this woman who rescued him from war tour Sudan. It's beautiful, it's very powerful. Basically, the last line of the song is, uh, if it wasn't for Emma, I would be a corpse on the African plane. And so his song wraps up and he comes backstage and he says, they hated it, it's brutal out there. And I'm like, oh, geez. <laughs> like if he, he's bothered, what am I gonna do? All the other comedians went out and did like a two minute dance routine before they said a single word. Of course, I'm not about to do that. I'm just terrified. But by that time, you know, they'd given me a really nice introduction. Today we'd like to step it up a bit harder. The guy who I'm about to introduce is actually one of the best comedians on the comedy circuit in America. With Churchill Live today, John Romsey! The fog machine had started and they called my name, so I walked out on stage. I'm not from Kenya. Nimetoka America, lakini nimeka Kenya kwa moda wa wakamoja. And imagine, sometimes I miss my friends and my brothers in America. And when I miss my friends and my brothers, I go to the Maasai Market. <laughs> and when I leave the Maasai Market, I no longer miss my friends and my brothers. Because at the Maasai Market, everyone calls me, Rafiki, Rafiki, Rafiki. <laughs> Ndugu, Ndugu, Ndugu. Which means friend and brother. I have all kinds of friends and brothers at the Maasai Market. Asante sana, Asante sana. And of course, I hope I get a son in Kenya. Because if I get a son in Kenya, he can grow up to be president of America. absolutely loved it. They, they, yeah, they absolutely loved it. There was a big party afterwards and everyone was so nice to me uh, and tell me I was legitimately funny and saying not, not, not just for a white person, you know, but just you were a good comedian. 
And so the guy who helped me with all that, I was like, you know, Alfie, thanks so much. This airs for like 10 million people, 5 million in Kenya. I was like, will I be recognized tomorrow? He was like, oh no, no. No one will recognize you because all white people look alike. He goes, even me, the second time we met, I had hoped that you would be the only white person at the restaurant. By the end of that process, I was really proud of just, just all that I'd learned. Hopefully one day I'll be on a late night talk show in America, but I won't be as proud of that performance, I don't think, as I am of Churchill Live. Now, John has a website where you can see more of his work. And please, do yourself a favor and check out John's full performance on Churchill Live. It's on our website, snapjudgment.org. That story was produced by Stephanie Fu. And, and bass up the track a little bit, because I, I want to hear that boots, boots, you know what I'm saying? You've reached not the end of the show, but the edges of the Snap Judgment universe. Full episodes, movies, pictures, available for your pleasure right now, snapjudgment.org. Facebook, Snap Judgment. Twitter handle, snapjudgment.org. Snap Judgment was produced by myself and the Pips. Producers of the highest quality product. Give it up for that quivering bundle of nerves, the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. Anna Sussman needs to be in the know. Jamie DeWolf needs to be in the show. Pat and C.D. Miller has needs you cannot know. Stephanie Fu is going to get up and go. Renzo Goria likes the high and the low. Lindsay Lee Keel digs the high top afro. And Will Urbina is about to blow. Now then, did you ever go to work and hear the person in the next cubicle snacking on celery sticks with peanut butter and raisins? Ugh. Don't tease, don't tease. That's just the Corporation for Public Broadcasting trying to save some money on lunch so they can party all weekend. Much love to the CPB. PRX, the public radio exchange, rubbing the public's nose in the media every time they take a media on the clean carpet. PRX.org. And you know this is not the news. This is not the news. In fact, you could watch the big money lottery on the telly. Scream. Call the newspapers. Let them know you won, you won, you won. Go on the morning news shows to peddle your psychic horoscope lottery predictions. Make lots of money. And when the real lottery winner shows up, you would sneak out the back and take the first flight to the islands and you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is NPR. <laughs>